Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello there. My name is Zach Twomley. You are a wonderful history friend, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. Happy Valentine's Day. Do you love history? Do you love When Diplomacy Fails? Then you've come to the right place. The Versailles Anniversary Project is motoring on ahead with our latest episode here, and it is just as gloriously detailed as every other aspect of this project. One day, it seems, can take up an entire 40-minute episode. Where else would you see that detail? If not this podcast, of course you should know this podcast is loved by you all, just like it should be. And because it's loved so much, and because you guys are so wonderful with this podcast, it's part of my job. Which means I get to dedicate all this time and attention to detail and love as the history podcast chancellor, well, the producer at least, of When Diplomacy Fails. I'm forever being asked how you guys can get in touch with, inquire about, and above all, support this podcast. That's not necessarily true, but I have to fudge these little introduction bits into these episodes whatever way I can, otherwise you'd never know how. Follow this podcast on Twitter, at WDF Podcast. Find us on Facebook, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. We're at 3,000 likes now, whoopty freaking do Let's see if that actually makes this podcast go somewhere. And we are also at 
700 members in the Facebook group. So go and check all those avenues out. But above all, don't forget to tell someone. Tell someone, tell anyone about this show, about how much you enjoy it, how much you love it, because it's Valentine's Day and, you know, that's fairly topical and all that stuff. And of course, if you have those annoying jingling coins in your pocket, you know the kind that just you just can't seem to get rid of, well, I've got a solution for you. Give them to the nearest charity. But if you're sick of doing that, go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and get something back for your very lovely charity, which is either certain perks that give you the scripts for each episode, the episodes containing no ads, an hour of extra content every month, or playing the delegation game. Further up the tree of tiers you go, you can get merchandise. Isn't that lovely? Everything from pens to books to t-shirts, everything in between. So check all that out, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. But until then, thanks so much for listening and supporting, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 37. Today is the 14th of February 2019, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. The journey from imagining a new world order to creating an institution to realise that order had been a long one, and it is easy to get lost in the weeds when attempting to pinpoint the origins of this order. We have seen in the last few episodes that everyone from the British Prime Minister to Jan Smuts of South Africa had a claim on imagining, or at least perfecting, the vision of the League of Nations which Woodrow Wilson had advocated for in his 14 points, and on many occasions since. Regardless of who dealt it, the time had come by the 14th of February 1919 to sit down and smell it, or rather, hammer out 
some concrete details. But just like everything else in the Paris Peace Conference, this act of hammering came accompanied by certain complications. The greatest one was that Woodrow Wilson would quickly be returning home to sell his idea of the league, as well as several other developments, as soon as he was finished and free to do so. Thus, we can view the 14th of February as something of a watershed moment in the history of the Paris Peace Conference, because by the time Wilson returned from the United States, on the 14th or 15th of March, depending on your time zone, his reception would be very different, as would the format of the meetings he was to have with the Big Three. This is testified to by the fact that our primary source for these meetings, the Council of Ten Minutes, which first began recording on the 12th of January, abruptly end on the 14th of February, though they are taken up in other places, as we will see. Once Wilson returned, the Council of Ten was effectively no more, and in the week after he arrived, this Council of Ten was gradually transformed into the Council of Four. Thankfully, for the sake of our narrative, the minutes for these Big Four and then Big Three meetings are freely accessible from the same source online as those of the Council of Ten, so a huge thanks must go out once again to the Foreign Relations of the United States website for digitising this treasure trove of material so that podcasters like me don't have to go to a dusty library in order to find it. You know where we'll be going next then, but what about what happened today on the 14th of February 1919? Well already guys, February's been a pretty busy month. It was bookended by incessant meetings in the Council of Ten and the Supreme War Council, and punctuated by a wild international situation that never seemed to settle down. Within a few months, Greece would have landed soldiers in Turkey, Hungary would have collapsed into communist revolution, and Poland and Soviet Russia would be at war. For now though, a state of undeclared war, but open anxiety and jealousy, existed throughout Eastern Europe, as so many questions remained unsettled, and so many claims unsatisfied. It remained to be seen precisely how, now that the American president was to be absent, in addition to the British Prime Minister, these problems would be overcome, and progress would be made. The hidden story of the Paris Peace Conference is that of people stepping up to the plate, be that men like Arthur Balfour, who assumed much of David Lloyd George's duties, or men like, yes, Edward House, who effectively received the reins from a somewhat reluctant Wilson as the latter departed for the United States. This transfer of authority was not relinquished completely without reservation on Wilson's side. In House's diary, which itself was one of the largest entries on the 14th of February, House wrote of his presentation of his new role in the Paris Peace Conference once Wilson had gone. The president, as House appreciated, would take some sweetening after having wielded personal control for so long. We sat in my private study for 20 minutes together, and during that time we settled all the important questions I had on my mind to take up with him before he left for America. I outlined my plan of procedure during his absence. I told him I thought we could button up everything during the next four weeks. He seemed startled and even alarmed at this statement. I therefore explained that my plan was not actually to bring these matters to a final conclusion, but to have them ready for him to do so when he returned. This pleased him. One could be forgiven for thinking that Wilson would have valued something of a break. It had, after all, been an intense past few weeks. This fortnight in February alone would have been enough to cause grey hairs, and Wilson had been more active than perhaps any other figure during its debates, as Joseph Tumulty, Wilson's private secretary, recalled in his memoirs, saying, 
The president worked everybody at the peace conference to a standstill. He worked not only the American delegates, but the way he drove the leisurely diplomats of Europe was often shameful to see. Sometimes he would actually have two meetings going on at the same time. Once I found a meeting of the Council of the Big Four going on in his study, and a meeting of the financial and economic experts, 20 or 30 of them, in full session upstairs in the drawing room, and the president oscillating between the two. It was he who always was the driver, the initiator at Paris. He worked longer hours, had more appointments, granted himself less recreation than any other man, high or low, at the peace conference. For he was the central figure there. Everything headed up to him. Practically all of the meetings of the Council of Four were held in his study in the Place de Etat-Unis. This was the true capital of the peace conference. Here, all the important questions were decided. Everyone who came to Paris upon any mission whatsoever aimed first of all at seeing the president. Representatives of the little, downtrodden nationalities of the earth from Eastern Europe, Asia and Africa thought that if they could get at the president, explain their pathetic ambitions, confess their troubles to him, all would be well. Hardworking although he may have been, Wilson cannot have been ignorant of the challenge which awaited him in the United States. Before he faced the music at home though, Wilson first had to attend the plenary conference in the afternoon at the Quai d'Orsay. This was only the third plenary conference since the peace conference had opened. It was here that those delegates of the minor powers, the size and composition of which had caused so much squabbling, would be represented. According to the contemporary historian George Creel, author of the 1920 book The War, The World and Wilson, this watershed moment of the construction process of the New World Order was overshadowed by the axe which hovered over Wilson's neck, the axe of public denunciation at home, denunciation made possible and palatable by the fact that the United States was no longer at war and differing loyalties could now be publicly displayed. Creel wrote, On February 14th, the President reported the first draft of the League Constitution, a draft that expressed his principles without change, and it was confirmed amid acclaim. It was at this moment, unfortunately, that the President was compelled to return to the United States to sign certain bills, and for the information of the Senate, he carried with him the Covenant as agreed upon by the Allies. The draft of the League Constitution was denounced even before its contents were known or explained. The bare fact that the document had proved acceptable to the British Empire aroused the instant antagonism of the professional Irish-Americans, the professional German-Americans, the professional Italian-Americans, and all those others whose political fortunes depended upon the persistence and accentuation of racial prejudices, where when hyphen was scourged the year before, a score of hyphens was now encouraged and approved. For the record, what Creel is referring to when he talks about hyphens was the identification of Americans with their former German or Italian or Irish elements or ancestry. Where before, during the First World War, when it mattered to be an American and loyal above all else, such hyphens, such identification with different nationalities to make yourself somehow less American, was frowned upon. Oh, how times had changed. They had changed because of the war, but they had also changed because the atmosphere in which Wilson was about to go into had become a lot more partisan. Between 10am and 1pm on the 14th of February, though, Wilson was with Edward House, sorting out some kind of agenda which would help jolly things along while the president was absent. 
As we saw, though, this would still give Wilson the final word once he returned. Far from desirous of a break from Paris, it was on the contrary difficult for Wilson to leave the city behind, because it meant that he was leaving the supervision of his baby in the hands of other men. Wilson had never been good at delegating. In fact, he had been so bad at it that he insisted on bringing ineffectual non-entities to Paris with him as part of the five-man American delegation. Had he brought other men with him of greater stature or ability, such as former presidents like Roosevelt or Taft, then he may not always have gotten everything his way, but he still would have been supported to the letter by a team with as much enthusiasm and capacity for getting things done as he had. Well, maybe he shouldn't have brought Roosevelt, but in any case, you get what I mean. In the opinion of Secretary of State Robert Lansing, one of the five-man delegation, who would have resented being called a non-entity, but who simply was not permitted the freedom of action he needed by the president, Wilson's inability to delegate and his obsession with micromanaging everything that transpired contributed almost certainly both to the president's collapse in health and the ultimate failure of the league. Lansing had expressed this point several times in his memoirs, and we've seen it expressed in this podcast before, so we don't need to quote him again, but it should be said that there was no shortage of people hovering around Wilson, urging him not only to share some of the workload, but also to be realistic about what could be achieved. Not even House, the all-conquering diplomatic hero, if you believe his memoirs, believed that the resistance or self-interests of the other great powers could be wholly overcome. House perhaps had a premonition of the president returning in a month's time and blaming any setbacks upon his old friend because he was unable to accept that, in reality, much of his vision was unattainable without some serious negotiation, clarification or delegation. And none of these Asians were things that Wilson was willing to engage with. House even made a note of his efforts to appeal to Wilson's realistic side during their three-hour meeting in the first part of the 14th of February, writing, I asked him to bear in mind while he was gone that it was sometimes necessary to compromise in order to get things through, not a compromise of principle, but a compromise of detail, and I called his attention to the fact that he had made many enemies since he had been here. I did not wish to have him leave expecting the impossible in all things. It is reasonable to wonder why House did not press the president further. Why didn't he urge him to find some allies, even on the Republican side? And why didn't he try to prepare Wilson for the backlash which may follow? House was astute enough to insist that Wilson make landfall in Boston rather than New York, as Boston was a known Democratic stronghold and both the Bostonians and their Democratic mayor were eager to do him honour, as House noted. Wilson listened to this, or perhaps had settled on this all along. It is not entirely wise to take everything House said at his word, but the outstanding questions remain unanswered. We should bear in mind that in spite of Wilson's obsession with the League, its latest version had not been written up by him, nor had he been particularly active in crafting some of its core articles. As the historian John Bassett reminds us, that honour was due to men whose names have largely been forgotten, and who, for the most part, were not even American. Bassett wrote, The Covenant was prepared by a commission created by the conference, of which President Wilson was chairman, but Wilson did not write the Covenant. The members of the commission, among whom were such experienced men as Léon Bourgeois of France, General Smuts of South Africa, and Lord Robert Cecil of Great Britain, gave careful consideration to its terms, and the result was a well-considered, if somewhat theoretical, document. 
Wilson is spoken of as the founder of the League of Nations. This assertion is only true in the sense that, more than anyone else, he raised up the idea that there must be a league and forced its acceptance on the Big Four so that the Covenant became part of the treaties made by the victorious Entente powers with Germany, Austria, Hungary and Bulgaria. Without his action, the League would not, in all probability, have come into existence. As to his work on the commission that made the Covenant, it was constant and efficient, but not dominant. He attended the sessions of the Council of Ten and of the Big Four during the day. In the evening, instead of resting as the other three did, he worked with the commission until night was far advanced. This double task, performed with intensity of feeling, is believed to have laid the foundation of that physical collapse that was later on to prove so disastrous to the adoption of the Covenant. Of course, on this day 100 years ago, Wilson was not thinking of what may occur down the line, and if he was, he did not show it. This was to be a day of victory in Paris, because it was to be the day that the League was confirmed in its present form. Even if he hadn't been responsible for its current shape, he would take the lion's share of the credit, and for better or for worse, this new institution would add to his reputation and record. The previous evening, on the 13th of February, Wilson had told the Council of Ten that he hoped the Covenant of the League of Nations would be created, ready for preparation to the full plenary conference the following afternoon. It was only that evening that the plan for the plenary conference the next afternoon was decided upon. Evidently, the great powers need only say jump, and the other powers attending the Paris Peace Conference would say how high. Aside from their lobbying and occasional trips to petition the American president, there was surprisingly little for the delegation of the minor powers to do in any case, and they would surely be eager to hear what the constitution of the League would look like. Wilson noted somewhat ominously that, while he would only be explaining the constitution's composition, and those present in the afternoon of the 14th of February wouldn't be permitted to debate the constitution's implications, he did not quite know how other members of the plenary conference could be stopped from making speeches if they wished to do so. It was known, at least to House, that some individuals on the League of Nations Commission were very fond of their own voices, and this was to be borne out during that afternoon of the 14th of February when the finished version of the League was presented to the world. The Commission had been tasked with creating some kind of workable constitution which the League could base its legitimacy upon, and as we have seen, Wilson had largely followed the advice and ideas of other statesmen like Jan Smuts, Robert Cecil, and the French representative Léon Bourgeois. Clemenceau was conspicuous in his absence from the League of Nations Commission's proceedings because he was nowhere near as interested as the President, and he valued his quiet evenings. As did Balfour and David Lloyd George, both of whom had delegated responsibility for crafting the League's constitution to their subordinates. That Wilson took on the role of Chairman of the League Commission tells us much about his determination to shape the League to his liking. More accurately, since it had already been shaped by other people, the position of chairman granted Wilson the final say on what form the League took, and this was just how he liked it. He had been content to let others do the work for him in months past, and now he was equally content to pick up from where they had left off, once he found its key tenets agreeable enough. The waited moment, that day of days which Wilson had longed for, when America would be seen to present its peace deal to the world, took place at about 3.30pm on the 14th of February, 1919. 
On this day a hundred years ago then, Wilson's journey from observant neutral to fully invested moralizing force was complete, or at least he certainly thought so. The presentation of the Constitution of the League had begun with the opening statement, a somewhat unwieldy mess of punctuation that the Commission had agreed upon the previous evening. It read, The high contracting parties, in order to promote international cooperation and to achieve international peace and security by the acceptance of obligations not to resort to war, by the prescription of open, just and honourable relations between nations, by the firm establishment of the understandings of international law as the actual rule of conduct among governments, and by the maintenance of justice and a scrupulous respect for all treaty obligations in the dealings of organised people with one another, agree to this covenant of the League of Nations. An auspicious day was marked by the conventionally inauspicious, somewhat familiar, introducing statement. It was unremarkable enough to our man Harold Nicholson, who devoted barely two sentences to the 14th of February in his diary. He likely felt busy enough with membership on the Greek and Czech committees to even bother spending much brain power on what he viewed as Wilson's project. Third plenary session of the conference, Nicholson wrote. Wilson reads over his draft covenant. He then leaves Paris for Washington for purpose of adjourning Congress. Pours with rain. Pathetic fallacies aside, what had been laid down during this afternoon was incredibly significant. If only those silly Frenchmen would let Wilson have his moment, instead of droning on needlessly. House, predictably, was at Wilson's side during the conference, and made no attempt to hide his impatience when Léon Bourgeois, the French representative on the League Commission, got up to say his piece. As Wilson had noted the previous evening, there was to be no facility for stopping other people from doing this, and considering the fact that so many delegates present had yet to have any opportunity to speak at all, there was reason to be concerned that this plenary conference might never end, as the egos blew hot and cold throughout the room. House recorded the planned agenda for the meeting, and, as usual, took some time to marvel at his own brilliance. At 3.30 there was a plenary meeting of the Peace Conference at the Quai d'Orsay. I had arranged most of the programme. It is astonishing how easy it is to do this if one takes the initiative. After some discussion with the President and Lord Robert Cecil, I sent word to Clemenceau that the order of the afternoon would be that the President, acting as chairman for the committee to prepare a covenant for the League of Nations, would make a report and read the covenant which had been constructed, and he would make a speech upon the subject. That Lord Robert Cecil would follow with a speech, then Orlando and perhaps Premier Venizelos. This programme was literally carried out, with the exception that Bourgeois also spoke for France. We tried to get Bourgeois to not mention any of the reservations he had concerning the Covenant, but our efforts were futile. He promised to say nothing but a sentence or two if Cecil did not speak. After a consultation with the President, we declined to make any concession because it seemed necessary for Great Britain to approve. During this period, it seemed to occur to House that he had been the very first person to refer to the Constitution of the League of Nations as a covenant, a fact for which he was very proud, if indeed he was the first. Following Wilson's opening address, House and Wilson silently passed notes between the other. Dear Governor, wrote House to Wilson, who was standing nearby, your speech was as great as the occasion. Bless your heart, Wilson replied. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
The president was probably just glad to have someone that agreed with him for a change. Bourgeois did make his intervention, as he had said he would, once the Greek premier had finished talking. House made no secret of how he felt about the fact that the day had begun well, but that it was now 6pm and he was tired of people. Bourgeois made his usual tiresome speech. After he had finished, I did not wait to hear it translated, since it was already 6 o'clock and I was weary of so much talking. I dislike seeing time wasted the way it is here by talking that is so perfectly useless. The president himself talks entirely too much, but he does it so much better than anyone else that he always interests me. I cannot emphasise too strongly his accomplishment in this direction. It amounts to genius, and as far as I know, he is a class unto himself. Notwithstanding Bourgeois' droning, the League had been presented before the plenary conference, which actually meant that it had been presented before the world, since the press were entitled to attend, and were free to report on what they had seen and heard, to an extent, unlike where they had been forced to digest the pre-approved daily report on the Council of Ten's deliberations in the previous weeks. The press, and much of the world's statesmen, had now seen for themselves what this Paris Peace Conference was all about. It was about ending the war conclusively with Germany, yes, but it was unquestionably also about putting something good in the place of the old and the bad. The most important step in that direction had been taken, and Wilson had good cause to be happy with the results. It had been an eventful day and the President was certainly exhausted, but he was not about to fade away into the good night alone. The Allied powers had committed to giving the President a proper send-off as thanks for his weeks of genuinely hard work, hard work which had taught everyone a lot about each other. House recorded the poignant scene in his diary. After dinner, I went to the Hotel Murat to bid the President and Mrs. Wilson goodbye and go with them to the station. I was surprised to see practically all official France at the station, from the curb to the train itself, a distance of many hundred feet, a beautiful red carpet was spread with palms and other evergreens on each side, making a corridor of some 15 or 20 feet wide and extending several hundred feet. The French president and Madame Poincaré, Monsieur Clemenceau and his entire cabinet, the British ambassador and everyone else of prominence were there. The president bade me a fervent goodbye, clasping my hand and placing his arm around me. The entire occasion was a fitting tribute to him and was an appropriate act to a very memorable visit. He looked happy as well indeed he should. Woodrow Wilson wasn't the only one leaving. Within a few days, the Italian Premier would leave for Rome as well, with significantly less fanfare, and Lloyd George had already left Paris, with the result that only Clemenceau was left behind in the original Big Four. All who remained had no intention of twiddling their thumbs and waiting for Wilson, Lloyd George or Orlando to return, but it could not be denied that the peace conference had passed some kind of discernible finish line in that at least one of the tasks which they had set out to accomplish had been achieved. It was easy under this mood of achievement to feel positive about the work which had been done and the tasks which lay ahead. Yet, as Harold Nicholson had noticed, the day had poured with rain, an omen which he likely never even considered, but which struck me as soon as I read it. It poured with rain on the day of the League of Nations' first proper presentation to the world. Who could say whether it would not rain upon Wilson's arrival in Boston, or upon his return, or throughout the entire period of negotiation, where that coveted final treaty with Germany was created? 
If the last few weeks had taught the Big Three anything, it was how little they knew. Solutions, of course, had been created, and thriving working relationships had been established, but the greatest challenges still had to be solved, and fatigue had already begun to set in. By the time the various VIPs returned, there would be a feeling not that the break had done everyone some measure of good, but that it had made everyone somehow more tired, less tolerant and less patient. In the case of the American president, it even seemed to have aged him prematurely. Before we close out this episode, it might be helpful to make a few notes on the League of Nations. Once it officially opened its doors in January 1920, membership of the League was open to any fully self-governing state, dominion or colony, if its admission is approved by two-thirds of the Assembly of the League. As John Spencer Bassett wrote, A state must give effective guarantees of its sincere intention to observe international obligations, and... Like any other states in the League, it must accept the rules of the League relating to its military, naval and air forces and armaments. As to what is to constitute an effective guarantee of sincerity on the part of a state admitted to membership, the Covenant is silent, and no steps have been taken since the League was formed to elucidate the point. It has seemed to be a useless point, because in the early stage of its existence, the League was so glad to get another member that it did not quibble about actual securities to be given. It is not likely that the League will feel like taking a strong position on this subject while important states are still not members, and if all such states join the League, there would be no point in giving the rule a strict interpretation. If you think this sounds a little bit contemporary and not at all like someone's looking back on the League that had failed, then you're right. John Spencer Bassett was writing this in 1930, that is, before the Japanese, then the Italians and then Nazi Germany, so undermined the League of Nations as to make it effectively worthless. Even before that point, though, Bassett recognised that the soft power of the League could only go so far, and that sooner or later, the enthusiasm for peace which everyone felt in the 1920s would be challenged by feelings of loyalty and nationalism for their own state interests. Even in 1930, Bassett believed that the League was bound to run into problems if it did not find a way to reconcile the interests of peace, internationally subscribed to, with the interests of nation-states attempting to go their own way. Bassett may well have suspected that the League in its current form was not long for this world, but his 1930 work reads like some kind of time capsule today, because it is apparent that Bassett, like so many other academics, had no inclination of the storm which was about to engulf first the League, and then the world. Of the 32 states represented at the Paris Peace Conference, only three... Ecuador and the now-defunct Hejaz, and then, of course, the United States, would refrain from joining the League. By 1930, when Bassett's book was released, the League contained 40 members, with Germany joining in September 1926, following the settling of some scores with France, and everyone essentially calming down a bit. That the League came into existence at all is thanks to Woodrow Wilson, a bizarre yet undeniable fact of history, which is often glossed over. True, he perhaps never had the mental capacity or imagination to place flesh on the bones of the League idea, but once this had been done for him, Wilson was relentless to a fault in pushing for it. That he was relentless in advocating the League's creation is something which we can often feel instinctively hostile about. In fact, this was one of the strikes against Wilson's record, which I had marked down in the mental ledger even before I began this project. But why is that? 
Why did I, and why do so many of us, feel this way towards Wilson? Are we annoyed at him because he failed to bring the United States into the league, and because he should have succeeded in that aim? Or because the institution which he pushed for also folded up in the end? Some of his contemporaries argued for those points, but they also criticised Wilson because the president, in his quest to acquire the league, went against some of the fundamental principles of Realpolitik. He let his rivals know exactly what he wanted, and that he would do anything in order to get what he wanted. This, some would say, made Wilson principled, but it also unmistakably made him vulnerable to exploitation. The situation is best explained by a man who was there at the time, and who started out as his fan and supporter, only to turn against him in the end, the Secretary of State, Robert Lansing. Writing on the league situation in his memoirs, Lansing noted, As the leaders of the Allied powers, with their practical ideas, came to a realisation of the situation and saw that the President was willing to concede much in exchange for support of the Covenant, they utilised his supreme desire to obtain, by barter, material advantages for their own nations. From the results of the negotiations, it may be deduced that by clever representation, they gained concession after concession. The apparent support of the idealism of the President by those statesmen was in my opinion chiefly for a purpose and not out of conviction. They loudly applauded the President's declarations of principle as the just basis of peace, but they never once attempted to apply them unless their own national interests were advanced. They praised the Covenant as a wonderful document, as the Magna Carta of the world, as an eternal memorial to its author, and they subtly flattered the President by confiding to the League every question which could not be immediately solved, ostensibly to show their faith in the proposed organisation, but really to postpone the settlement of dangerous disputes. We are by no means finished tracing the fate of the League in the Paris Peace Conference, but in the next episode our focus switches away from Paris and towards the mission which to Wilson mattered arguably most of all, getting approval from his countrymen for this scheme he had just created. If, when pitching his League scheme to a Congress stacked full of Republicans, the President proved unable to wrest some kind of agreement or compromise from them, then it would be known back in Paris that he had failed, and that he was even more vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation than before. Imagine, Wilson must have shuddered to think of it, what would happen if the American President was seen to make the creation of the League of Nations his mission, only to fail to bring his own country into that body? What would the world say? What would his supporters even think? It was a nightmarish situation, which Wilson was soon to experience firsthand. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 